The Egypt game is elaborate. It's imaginative. It's a complex series of rituals and ceremonies performed by a group of undeniably smart and curious children in a college town in the 60s. It's also the title of a Newbery Honor-winning book by Zilpha Keatley Snyder. It was published in 1967 and read by me approximately three decades later, when I promptly became obsessed with it. You'll have to keep listening to find out if I'm still obsessed with the Egypt game now that I've revisited it as an adult, but I can tell you a bit about why I loved it in the first place, which I think will help set the stage for this conversation too. The book is primarily about April Hall and Melanie and Marshall Ross. April has recently moved to the apartment building in Berkeley, California, where Melanie and Marshall live. She'll be staying there with her grandmother while her aspiring actress of a mother is off doing aspiring actress things. But in the meantime, she plans to bring her Hollywood mannerisms to her new friends, who really aren't interested. What April and Melanie can agree on is their love of learning and history and, more specifically, of ancient Egypt. What happens next really only could have taken place in a world without phones and Paw Patrol. April and Melanie research ancient Egypt together and build their own imaginary worlds based on it in the backyard of the A to Z shop, a local antique store run by a mysterious man known as The Professor. Melanie's little brother Marshall tags along, and by the end of the book, the girls have brought some new kids into the group, Elizabeth, Toby, and Ken. The story itself is pretty simple, but it lays the groundwork for some great adult discussions on diversity in kids' literature, the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation, teasing as a form of flirting and social currency, the importance of imaginative play, bossiness, mental illness, the way we talk to kids about hard things, and more. I'm so grateful to have had this week's guest, Andrea Bartz, along for the ride as we dive into all this good stuff. Andrea is a journalist and the author of The Lost Night, a thriller from Crown that was recently named a best book by People, Marie Claire, and Real Simple. Mila Kunis is also adapting it as a limited series. Andrea's second novel, The Herd, will be published in 2020. Previously, she was a senior editor at Glamour, Fit Pregnancy, Psychology Today, and other magazines. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at AndyBarts or visit her online at andreabarts.com. Follow SSR on Twitter and Instagram at SSRPod and find us on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast. If you're listening and loving the show, I want to know about it. Take a screenshot of iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening and post on Insta Stories, tagging us at SSRPod. You can also leave a five-star rating or, even better, a review on iTunes, which will help maintain our spot in the rankings and stay visible to new listeners. If you feel so inspired, you can also lend a hand to this passion project of mine by coming on board as a Patreon sponsor. I promise you're going to love the rewards. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support. A huge thank you to all of the Patreon sponsors who are already out there. Okay, listeners, time to take a magical journey into ancient Egypt, or at least the backyard of an old curio shop that kind of looks like ancient Egypt if you're 12. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkasik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi. 
Hi, Andrea. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Allie. We're talking about the Egypt game today, and I'm just going to say right up front, this was one of my very favorite books. I feel like I say that a lot on the podcast, but this time (laughs) I really mean it. And this was one of those books that I remember telling people was my favorite when I was a kid, probably in like third or fourth grade, but I, I couldn't really remember why. I just remember being totally obsessed with it. Yeah, that sounds about right. I had an experience where I was pretty sure I had read it when we were, you know, figuring out what book to read. And then I actually started reading and I was like, no, I don't think I ever picked this up before. It was just so in the air and everyone knew about it that um, I, I assumed I'd read it. But I think I was reading it for the first time this week. That's so interesting because a lot of people, after seeing my posts about it, because, you know, I share sometimes what I'm reading on the SSR mm-hmm. Instagram stories, and a few people reached out to me and were like, I totally forgot about this book, but I think I loved it. I think I read it. This was one of my favorites, but I can't remember it. And I find that happens every once in a while with an SSR book where like, it's not a book that people are necessarily aware of in the Mm -hmm. decades between being a kid and being an adult. But Mm -hmm. as soon as they see a photo of it or hear the title again, they remember it, but they don't remember much about it. You know, it's not one of those like blockbuster, super commercial successes that Mm -hmm. everybody is aware of all the time and is like super present in the pop culture zeitgeist, but people have like a very soft spot in their hearts for it. So I think a lot of people might relate to that story where they're like, "I, I think I remember this book. I'm not really sure exactly what my connection to it was, but I'm glad to be reminded of it now. Yeah. Well, that sort of suits the story too, because it has this like almost mystical feel to it where it's just all about this imagination game and you get really swept up in it and you you feel like you're living it. And then afterward, kind of the way that, you know, I was reflecting on my own imagination games as a kid, the way that afterward you're like, was that a game we played? How did that work? How did that go? Yeah, totally. I think one of the other things that's worth mentioning up front is that it was written in 1967. So it's a fairly old book, but I think there's a lot of themes in it that are really timeless, which I personally loved, especially on this go around, because there's so many ways in which our world has changed and the way that kids Mm -hmm. have changed since the book was written and even since I read it in the 90s. Um, So it was neat to be reminded of those timeless themes of like imagination, and curiosity and learning. And I think particularly for kids of today, like I hope they're reading this book because I think that themes like that are probably a great reminder that like you don't have to be on a screen all the time. I feel so Mm -hmm. old saying that, but I feel like those kinds of themes are probably extra valuable to kids today because this book is so much about like being out in the world and being curious and relying on your own imagination to have fun. So I just love that this book that was written in 1967, side note, it was a Newbery Honor winner. So very well regarded that those themes are still like so important and useful for kids. And I would think, you know, especially for parents today who want their kids to get off their phones and like get out into the world. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, because it is so timeless. I actually, it wasn't until after I'd finished it that I checked the publication date and I was kind of surprised it was 1967 because other than the fact that they call each other at home instead of using cell phones, like yeah. that's your dead giveaway that it's not super new. It felt like it could have been written in the seventies, the eighties, really even the nineties. So it, it definitely holds up. My guess when I was reading it was the seventies or eighties. I agree. Mm-hmm. Like it, 1967 sort of surprised me. And then I was actually asking my mom about it because I was with her this past weekend. And um, I'm not going to say what year she was born, but um, (laughs) 
this definitely was like a book that I would have thought she would have read given the timing of it and she wasn't familiar with it. So I wonder if it's just like continued to grow in popularity. Maybe it was primarily like a critical success when it first came out in the 10 or 20 years after and maybe it became a little bit more popular, a little bit more commercial in the late 80s and 90s because I I thought it was strange that she didn't remember it at all. Hmm, That's really interesting. Yeah, it kind of had a life of its own. It's interesting. So what were your first impressions as you started reading it? Again, you just... Um, you just sort of mentioned that maybe you realized that you hadn't read it. Did you realize that in those first few pages or was it as you went through that you realized that maybe this was actually your first time reading it? Um, I think when I started, I was still on the fence about whether or not I'd read it because it kind of starts out with that, that children's book trope, which Mm -hmm. I ultimately love of, um, you know, interesting discoveries in a curio shop or like never ending story or any of those. So I still was sort of on the fence about like, whether or not I had read it. And then once I really got into the story and realized it was really going to be about like this game that these kids had made up and, and it was all, you know, sort of based on this imaginary game. That's when I was like, I really don't think I've read this before, but it, what's cool is that it has such a familiar feel. Like I was saying before to any, you know, kid with an imagination who's done that and who's sort of like lived in these other worlds that, it definitely felt relatable despite the fact I was reading it for the first time as a, as a 30-something. Well, you mentioned the opening being this children's book trope, and I don't always do this, but I think I am going to read a bit from that opening chapter. So if you hear rustling pages, excuse me, but I do think that the first page is pretty magical, and I agree that it like fits right in there with so many other great children's books. The first title is called The Discovery of Egypt, and it goes like this. Not long ago in a large university town in California, on a street called Orchard Avenue, a strange old man ran a dusty, shabby store. Above the dirty show windows, a faded peeling sign said, A to Z, antiques, curios, used merchandise. Nobody knew for sure what the A to Z meant. Perhaps it referred to the fact that all sorts of strange things, everything from A to Z, were sold in the store. Or perhaps it had something to do with the owner's name. However, no one seemed to know for sure what his name actually was. It was all part of a mysterious uncertainty about even the smallest item of public information about the old man. Nobody seemed certain, for instance, just why he was known as the professor. And the author then goes on to sort of like place the store more in its setting, which is this university town in California. I think we're meant to believe that it's Berkeley because it definitely has sort of this like liberal, progressive, Mm -hmm. very diverse vibe to it, which I loved. And the first chapter, which I thought was really interesting, is told mostly from the point of view of the professor himself. And I actually wrote in the margins like is the whole book told from his perspective or are we going to switch over to the kids because I really felt like I was so engaged in the world of the professor in that first chapter right and then spoiler you don't really see anything from his perspective or get close to him again for much of the book most of the book yeah he kind of goes unmentioned for full chapters at a time we don't hear about him again until I would say about halfway through when there's a child in the neighborhood that's murdered and we find out that the professor is one of the like top suspects in town because Mm -hmm. he's mysterious and again we have this trope of like the misunderstood loner old man who nobody knows and so everybody then like assumes that he is a child murderer which is so messed up and I think Mm -hmm. it's like a a valuable lesson for kids to realize that like you shouldn't take those things for granted don't make assumptions that just because somebody seems lonely or seems out of place or seems a little bit unique to his setting like you can't assume that that makes them a bad person so I think by the end of the book we definitely realize that that that's the lesson we're supposed to read into it but I do think like I was trying to take myself back because I think as an adult it's very easy to see through that 
that lesson and be like, well, of course Mm -hmm. the professor is not actually the one who killed the kid. Like that seems too easy. It's too convenient. So it was very Mm -hmm. easy for me to be like, no, the professor is definitely a good guy. But I was trying to take myself back to reading it as a kid and wondering if I questioned whether or not the professor was a good guy. I was trying to do it like based on how the writing was and like Mm -hmm. what devices Zilpha Keatley Snyder used. And I think she probably did a pretty good job of writing to her audience. Like there are moments when I think at 10, 11, 12 years old, you maybe would wonder. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, again, something we see in in kids' literature and and pop culture. I was thinking about like Home Alone and Mm -hmm. the the scary old man who who ends up, you know, kind of being helpful or all the stories that have like the, the woman in the house that everyone, the neighborhood kids think is a witch. And yeah, I think when you're a kid and your world is like sort of insular and you don't have a ton of context yet for anything, people who are are different or seem reclusive or sometimes just old can be kind of scary. And something I loved about the book is how it was very impressive. It's super well written, but it also very much is like written from the perspective of a kid. Uh, Even some of the like tangents that she goes off on or over explaining why, you know, over explaining why they had to wait so long to get colored pencils in order to be able to draw the hieroglyphics and a whole, you know, side story about that was just sort of very, uh, to me, very reminiscent of the way, like, of kid logic and the way that kids' attention kind of works. And, like, the murder of a kid in the neighborhood is sort of an inconvenience because it keeps them inside. And when you're little, you know, you just see things from such a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And so it was fun to be reading this and to sort of, like, regress into feeling like a kid myself where you get more swept up in an argument about whether you should be writing the hieroglyphics, you know, right to left or or top to bottom than about these, you know, much scarier discussions of, like, is the professor who is just outside your play area actually a murderer? Yeah, she definitely speaks to kid concerns in a way that I loved. Like, she's so good at that. I made a note of a few others, like um, April and Melanie, and we'll talk more about them as we go because they're such great characters. Mm -hmm. But just to this point about, like, kid concerns, one of my favorite things was when they were, like, so offended by the fact that they should hang out with a younger girl who had just moved to the neighborhood because they're in sixth grade Mm -hmm. and this new girl who lives in their building, Elizabeth, I think she's in third or fourth grade, and Mm -hmm. they're, like, completely put off by the suggestion that they could possibly be friends with her. And I just think that's so funny and, like, such a moment of being in elementary school because as adults now, it's like two years is not an age difference. Like right. <laughs> I have plenty of friends who are two, three, four years older or younger than I am. But again, like putting yourself back in that headspace, like I'm not going to be friends with somebody who has a classroom on another hallway of the school. Like that's so embarrassing, <laughs> mom. How would you ever think that I could do that? And all of the like power struggles between the girls and the boys, which I think we definitely need to spend more time talking about. Mm-hmm. But like the fact that they were so disgusted by the mere idea of like hanging out with Toby and Ken and like Mm -hmm. just innately not trusting them because they're like silly boys and I just thought that was all so well done and like you said Mm -hmm. brought me right back to that place when those were my number one concerns and sort of like my worldview. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so it's just so fun to remember what it was like to be 12 and to have like these concerns that felt as all consuming as like our quote unquote grown up grown up concerns do now. But it was really like, are they going to, you know, can they really play this game with us or are they going to ruin it? Like that was your big, you know, drama of the week. Right. Can they be trusted? Or are they going to go tell yeah. all of the other boys what we're doing back here? 
I want to talk a little bit more about the diversity that's presented in this book because that was the subject of a lot of the sort of like commentary and think pieces that I found while I was researching for this conversation. Um, Again, this book was written in 1967. And over the course of doing this podcast, I've read books from the 50s and 60s, you know, all through history, even in like the late 19th century. I've read a few more classic kids books from that time period. And this is by far the most diverse children's book that I've read outside of maybe the 90s and even then that's like kind of a stretch I would say that we didn't start to see diversity like this until like the aughts and even even now we're still pushing for diverse books and you're seeing like tons of social media commentary about like hashtag we need diverse books for kids and so I think it's definitely worth noting that like Zilpha Keatley Snyder obviously made such efforts to demonstrate this like very well-rounded group of kids although she she seems to not have have gotten like full support for it it was sort of sort of controversial the way she did it I was reading an article in the Hornbook review and it was sort of like a it's called The Second Look, The Egypt Game. So it was a writer who went back and like reread it just as we did and then compared mm-hmm. her thoughts on it to the Hornbook's original review in 1967. And that particular reviewer was really not impressed. I think that reviewer's impression was that Zulfa Keatley Snyder designed this diverse group sort of out of a sense of like responsibility and it kind of felt contrived to her. Mm-hmm. She actually had said like, she thought that society would like outgrow that kind of diversity in a book, which in hindsight Mm -hmm. is sort of ironic. One of the quotes that I pulled out from that article is, even as we champion diverse books today, multicultural books are often not so much multicultural as they are representative of one particular facet of society outside the white default. It's still somewhat rare to see a heterogeneous group of friends in a children's novel. The child's characters themselves do acknowledge difference and then move on. So I think the writer of this particular piece is kind of acknowledging like she made a really good effort, you know, and especially at Mm -hmm. the time period, at the time when this was written, it was kind of a big deal for kids to read about six kids that were all of different backgrounds. Like I, I just don't think that was the norm. So I think it's a shame that she ran into some um, critics obviously it's not perfectly done but at the time this was pretty progressive yeah it's interesting but the, the copy that I got was on my Kindle and so I don't know exactly what edition this was but it started with a little preface from the author where she explained um, that she had based all of the characters on actual um, kids she knew when she was a young adult uh, living in a university town and uh, they were all around those ages and she said she had to had to uh, sort of retrograde Marshall down to a four-year-old which yeah. makes sense because he's a very mature four But she did mention that she did base it on um, real kids and got all of their races and ethnicities correct. And it's interesting to read now because it's a little jarring almost the way that she calls out their races in a way that almost feels today a little, um, I don't know, impolite or something where she's kind of talking about the slanted eyes of the Chinese American and things like that. It's indelicate. (laughs) It's like clumsy for sure. It's a little clumsy, yeah. But at the same time, it's it's an interesting debate of like, oh, did she just do that because it's obligatory? Or did she do it because, you know, kids need more stories of, you know, diverse groups where their race and, and ethnicity isn't like the point of the book, you know? And it's something even as a fiction writer myself that I struggle with where I want a diverse cast of characters, but then it's like, well, it's a little awkward for me to just randomly have some characters be non-white simply for the sake of them being non-white. So I feel like, yeah. Yeah, it it definitely, again, surprised me that it was from 1967 um, and was really cool that it was just 
this group of friends who adored each other for sort of who they were and at times, you know, hated it and were annoyed with each other, but it wasn't about their race or them coming from different backgrounds or different parts of the neighborhood or, or you know, sides of the, of the track or anything like that. And so, yeah, that was quite striking. And, and again, I was surprised when I realized that that was from the, the 60s. Yeah, I can't say she did it perfectly. As I said, like, you know, mm-hmm. you pointed out the way that she really puts labels on everybody. And that's not something that we would wish for an author to do today. But I think she did a pretty good job given the time period and what she was working mm-hmm. with um, culturally at the time. I also think it's worth noting that, like, there's diversity not only in terms of their cultural backgrounds, but in terms of, like, their socioeconomic backgrounds. We get the sense mm-hmm. that um, Melanie and April and Marshall and Elizabeth, who all live in this apartment building together, I don't I don't think they're meant to have a lot of money. Elizabeth's mm-hmm. mother just had to move into, like, a basement apartment with her three children because her husband passed away. So I think they're all, like, from working-class families. April's grandmother is still working full-time, and, you know, I don't know exactly how old she is, but often in books like this, you have a grandmother who's home like baking mm-hmm. cookies and hanging out mm-hmm. and so I liked that we were getting a sense of this group of kids that they all came from a different place their families were working hard and they were there to support each other like they were all kind of helping each other to raise their children when they weren't available and I thought that was really cool also yeah definitely yeah it was interesting with with the ages that it was sort of ranging from four-year-olds to 11 years old or so yeah because 11 or 12 I had a few times where I was like you know in sixth grade do you really play like this like you're not too old for this kind of stuff Mm. but I realized it also worked really well because you're sort of on the cusp of being a kid but you're old enough that at least when I was that age you can kind of babysit you can be in charge of a little kid you can be hanging out without parents around so they were all sort of yeah responsible for helping out each other and watching the little kids when someone needed to be around and sort of having each other's back. I think Marshall also almost gave Melanie and April an excuse to play at things that they Mm. maybe would have thought otherwise were babyish and I remember this as well because I have sisters that are much younger than I am. And I remember like sometimes really liking that I had my little sisters used as an excuse for like watching a movie that maybe wouldn't have been cool for me at my age group Mm -hmm. or like playing a game that my friends wouldn't have thought was cool for a 12 or 13 year old. So I actually hadn't thought about that before you mentioned this, but I wonder if like having Marshall around freed them up a little bit to do things that maybe otherwise would have seemed silly. Yeah, it does seem that way. And of course, like with their wild imaginations and big 11 year old brains, they were coming up with all these sort of elaborate rituals and rules and ways to play. But it sounds like Marshall was kind of the perfect accomplice because he was mature for a four year old. Uh, that's made clear. And he you know, got the rituals right and, and seemed to sort of like it and absorb it. So yeah, there, it was sort of a, a motley crew but with all the elements in place for everyone to like feel comfortable playing together yeah they all made sense like it didn't I've I've read kids books where they had sort of these like ragtag groups of protagonists where I was like this is a stretch they wouldn't actually be friends Mm -hmm. but (laughs) this made sense to me like even when the boys came into the mix like I liked the way she wrote them kind of as being willing and open to learn and to like Mm -hmm. not be so cool. So I think she, she pulled this group together in a way that felt very real. Yeah. I loved that. And I loved that they were all kind of, the girls were kind of surprised by how into it, uh, Toby got. And then Ken continued to be kind of the, the holdout and the one who was a little would kind of blush whenever he participated, but he still participated. And I just felt like that was so relatable with those games where like somebody wants to be cool and is sort of embarrassed, like can't totally let loose, but, but is still doing it because they want to do it and yeah it just she she sort of got that dynamic just right I thought let's talk a little bit more about Melanie and April and dig into their characters because they're the heart of this story I mean Marshall too but 
I think particularly for me as like a young girl reading this book, I was obsessed with Melanie and April and April in particular is really a fascinating character. They're kind of like the glue that holds the group together because they meet in the first few chapters of the book when April moves to California, or I guess moves to another part of California. I think she was from Hollywood because her mom is sort of this like young starlet and she sends her to live with her grandmother because she's going on tour. And it's kind of unclear if she's like actually a star or if she's trying to become one. Like my sense was that she really wants to be famous and she's like on the cusp. Like maybe she's like a C or D list celebrity. um, Right. Who's working really hard at getting to the A list. So she sends April, her daughter, to go live with her grandmother. And it's actually April's father's mother. So it's even it's even a little bit more uncomfortable because you get the sense that like April lives with her mother full time. And so she probably doesn't know this grandmother whose name is Caroline. She doesn't know this grandmother's name is Caroline very well because like she's mostly raised by her mom. Right. Yeah. I think she even mentions when April's kind of bragging to Melanie that uh, her mom was a, was a featured extra in a movie or something like that. So it's like Melanie's super impressed and Melanie's mom's very polite about it. But, but we, the reader, at least as adults, and I think I'd probably feel differently as a kid, but as an adult reading it, it was kind of like, oh, like she's trying, but she has not, you know, you're kind of making spinning gold out of, out of something that hasn't totally happened yet. Yeah. I feel like in like 2019 language, she would maybe be, and I, look, I, I love Bravo, but I feel like in 2019 language, she'd be like a Bravo celebrity. You know, she'd be like mm-hmm. somebody who really wanted to be famous, but hadn't mm-hmm. quite gotten there like on her own merits yet. You know, had sort of like stumbled into a lucky break here or there and now was trying to get famous for the thing she actually wanted to be famous for. Um, mm-hmm. But April has picked up all these like hilarious Hollywood mannerisms from her mom. And I think, I think there's sort of this undertone of like her just wanting to make her mom proud by mm-hmm. being grown up and like showing up in this new place and like like sticking to her Hollywood airs. So she like wears these fake eyelashes and she puts her hair in like, I think they call it an upsweep on the top of her head. And she talks like she's a grown up, but later on mm-hmm. in the book, Melanie, who definitely is a little bit more like grounded of a character, has this realization that like April seems to know so much, but when you get down to it, like she doesn't really understand how the world works because she just hasn't had this like very down to earth childhood. Mm-hmm. Right. She's only, I, I think, uh, Melanie observes something like April only only seems to know the things that you would overhear from adults mm-hmm. speaking from adults talking around you and not from being spoken to directly which I thought was so interesting yeah that was a great line yeah and something I something I loved about Melanie is that she sort of recognized April's defenses and recognized how sort of you know mean or haughty or or anything like that that, that she seemed to be around other people but Melanie recognized that underneath that April was you know a softy and yeah. a sweetie and sort of patiently helped coax her out and defended her and like kind of had a scheme to make make sure she wasn't made fun of at school uh, and then was very relieved when it seemed like that was like that was you know succeeding and I just thought that was such a lovely message because we think of sixth grade girls as pretty mean like that's kind of the stereotype right like yeah. you're you're insecure and you're you're jealous or you really care about popularity and that kind of thing and so I really enjoyed that Melanie as a character cared about April and saw the the sweet girl underneath and was sort of invested in not letting April's defenses prevent them from being friends yeah Melanie finds herself in this very awkward situation that I think a lot of kids can probably relate to 
where like you have a family friend or a neighbor or somebody that's like come into your life from outside of sort of like the school network who you care Mm -hmm. about and who you really, really like, but you feel sort of awkward introducing to your primary social group at school. And Mm -hmm. I think like so many people have had to deal with that in different ways in their childhoods. Like maybe you have a cousin that like tags along with you and you really want your friends to like them, but you know that it might not be a natural fit. So Melanie's like very self-conscious, but like you said, instead of just kind of leaving April to fend for herself and being like, you know what? She's going to sink or swim. I'm just going to stick with my social group at school. I can hang out with April at home and we can do our thing. Melanie really wants to integrate April into her friend group at school. And at first I was a little put off by her scheme because basically what she decides to do is like hatch a plan to steal April's false eyelashes from her so that the girls at school don't make fun of her for wearing them. And she like steals them from her room. At first I was kind of annoyed by that because I felt like Melanie was like just trying to preserve her own reputation. But by the end of that anecdote, by the end of that scenario, I was like, no, this is actually like a really generous, loving thing for her to do to sort of get ahead of the issues that she knew April would run into once school started Mm -hmm. and to be the one to protect her so that like she maybe could have a bigger group. Like Melanie could have just decided that it was going to be a one-on-one friendship, but she really Mm -hmm. wanted April to have like a richer experience at the new school. Yeah. Yeah. You get the impression that it wasn't so much that she was embarrassed of April and more just that she cared about April and wanted her to not have a miserable experience. Which was so nice of her because we all know how hard sixth grade can be. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I also just loved the way that April and Melanie bonded. And I pulled out this one quote from April from one of their first conversations. She says, I'm always reading about ancient times and stuff like that. You know, Babylonia and Egypt and Greece and China. It's kind of a hobby of mine. As a matter of fact, I'm even planning to be an archaeologist when I grow up. Some people think that's a pretty kooky ambition for a girl, but I like it. You see, I have this theory about how I was a high priestess once in an earlier reincarnation. Do you think that's possible? And I just love that they bonded over like being small smart and being interested and interesting. And like, they started going to the library together every day. And I just thought that was so cool. Yeah, I loved that. I mean, I loved that the whole book was sort of powered by their imaginations. And there's a sweet scene early on where they're looking through Melanie's books, which again, it's cool. They're both readers, you know, Mm -hmm. go, go girls. Yeah. And what starts falling out of a book looks sort of like paper dolls. And there's a moment where April kind of comes up on the verge of making fun of Melanie about it. Like you're 12, you're 11 years old. You still play with paper dolls. Yeah. But then Melanie, Melanie does the bold thing and explains the truth, which is that it's an, an imaginary game where she has these different imaginary families and she cuts out photos that look like them, which kind of reminds me of something I used to do as a kid. I don't remember exactly what, but you know, you had elaborate backstories for imaginary characters and families and Barbies or whatever. Yep. And they immediately sort of that like opens both of them up and they start to realize like they've met their match in terms of playing these imagination games. And I just thought that was so touching and so cool that there was a whole book based on it. And a book that sold really well and has all these readers decades later because there's a lot of kids out there who sort of can power their play with imagination, but it maybe doesn't seem super cool compared to getting together and playing video games or whatever. So I really, I really liked that that was sort of their bonding point. I remember being fascinated with the paper dolls too, because like the Egypt game is cool, but a little bit more elaborate and like requires a lot of people and, you know, like a place to go set up all of your Egypt stuff Mm -hmm. and I played with paper dolls for a long time, probably like till I was close to 11. I loved them. And I just remember like being so inspired by Melanie's game where like she designed these whole like full, very like well-rounded personalities for each paper doll. And they had, they all had all these things that they did and all these relationships. And I remember being like, oh, like that's something that I could 
probably do. Maybe I can't do an Egypt mm-hmm. game, but like I could do something like this. And I always loved to write as a kid. So like these were the kind of like character games that I would play anyway. Mm-hmm. So I really like related to Melanie so much in that moment. And I just love that they bonded over these kinds of things. And I think that she really helped ground April by showing her that like these are very simple games that like kids play, even if they don't live in Hollywood mm-hmm. and they can still feel glamorous mm-hmm. and cool. Yeah, I loved that. I mean, kids are just so naturally creative and to go into sort of a, a to get onto my soapbox, it's like there's so many distractions now and so box. many. Yeah, but it just seems like today there's so many, you know, distractions and things that sort of take the imagining, do the imagining for you. And, you know, more broadly, like if a kid has a lot of energy, we medicate them mm-hmm. and like all sorts of different things that sort of seem antithetical to encouraging that sort of boundless creativity we have as kids. Um, and so it was just so refreshing to sort of drop into this world for a few hours of little kids just doing what they do best, which is coming up with all sorts of super creative and elaborate role play and and stepping into this other world in a way that you really only can when you're a little kid. Yeah, this just comes so naturally to them. They don't have to work very hard at mm-hmm. it. Exactly. I think it's also interesting that, and, and I relate to this, so this isn't a criticism of the book. I think it's just an interesting sort of like truth or it was when I was a kid both of these girls are fascinated by ancient Egypt and it's like very specific like that's the point in history that they're most fascinated by and I remember being fascinated with ancient Egypt as well and I I don't know if it's because of the way that things are set up in my school so sort of side note about like my relationship with ancient Egypt was that in third grade at my elementary school there was like an ancient Egypt unit and it was the thing that you looked forward to starting in kindergarten (laughs) because at the end of the unit there was like Egypt's day and everybody was allowed to dress up and it was separate from Halloween and so it was a it was a whole day where you got to like dress in costume and people brought in food and played games and so it's like you went through this unit and then you had this big celebration at the end of it and I think all the third graders got to like parade through the school in their costumes and so like from the time you started school you were aware of Egypt day and so like for those three years you were looking forward to the ancient Egypt Mm. unit. And it's kind of like a chicken or the egg thing. Like, do they set up units like that in schools because they know that kids are fascinated by cultures like this? Or are kids fascinated by this because it's taught in schools? And I don't know how much it's taught in schools universally or if it's even something that teachers focus on very much now. But I related to this book so much when I read it because I felt the same way about Egypt. And I wonder, I wonder how prevalent that is. Yeah. No, it's a really interesting question. And yeah, looking back, I was kind of thinking the same thing. Like, why were kids, and I personally, so invested in and excited about ancient Egypt, uh, when there are plenty of other, you know, ancient civilizations that are just as fascinating in a lot of ways. Um, And yet this was the one that kids kind of became obsessed with. And in my case, I don't, I know we learned about it in school. I don't remember, we didn't have anything like Egypt Day, but like, I grew up in the Milwaukee area and the Milwaukee Museum, one of its like four sections was ancient Egypt. And there was a mummy and there was you could push a little button on one of the displays and a rattlesnake would shake its little a little you know mechanical rattlesnake would shake its tail and it was this interactive and like really cool part of the museum and and part of like what we as kids were fascinated by uh, and I wonder if that's still the case or if it's it, it's weird because now it almost has this weird like fetishization feel to yeah. it like you know, at the very end of, of this book, they begin, they, they come up with the idea for the gypsy game. And yeah. apparently that was an actual sequel, the gypsy game. It was, I read game, it. Now, ooh. <laughs> ooh. I'm not, I'm not proud that I read it. <laughs> I mean, you're not the one who wrote it and released it. That's but true. But it's funny that there's, 
something with ancient Egypt and the makeup and the cats and the mummification. We were just obsessed with all the steps of mummification that fascinated us when yeah. there's plenty of fascinating stuff too in, you know, ancient China and ancient Greece and all of these different civilizations. Yeah, I think there's something very glamorous about it. Like I blame Cleopatra for a lot of it. You know, the photo, mm-hmm. you know, the the art and the drawings of her and sort of like the movies about her life. Mm-hmm. Like there's something so enchanting about her, even though, you know, she lived like a very complicated life, which is much easier to understand to an adult. But as a kid, you're like, what a beautiful, like, she's so beautiful. She has all, you know, people are feeding her grapes. Like none of these things Mm -hmm. are the actual reality of what it was like to live in this civilization. But I think that for so long, that was how it was demonstrated in pop culture. And it is interesting that kids latch onto that. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of discussion of, um, in the book, the Halloween scene where they had their makeup done Mm -hmm. and they were dressed in these like beautiful clothes that they'd been working on for weeks that they thought looked like ancient Egypt. And they had sort of the, you know, cat eye drawn on. And there was there was a lot of uh, words devoted to how sort of glamorous they looked and how amazing they looked and how everyone had to stop and get photos of them, yeah. which, yeah, kind of plays into that, that glamorization of, of this, you know, actual society. Yeah. You mentioned the fetishization of it. And I, I do want to talk about that because I think like we're living in this in this time now where there's so much conversation about what is appropriate in terms of the way that like we engage with cultures that aren't our own and cultural appropriation mm-hmm. and what's the difference between celebrating and appropriating and appreciating and appropriating. And those are all like such important conversations. And I did have to wonder as I was reading it, I was like, I don't necessarily want to engage in this like hot take culture where I have to be like, this is all terrible because it's cultural appropriation. Because I don't know that it is, but there's mm-hmm. a part of me too that's like, how would we have to approach this differently if somebody were to write the same book today. And from that same piece that I mentioned earlier in the Horn book, I pulled out a line that said, critics' assertion that the novel would be dated because of its ethnically diverse cast now seems almost laughable given the minimal progress we've made toward inclusion in children's books in the past 50 years. What remains problematic, though, is the way that children play at a culture outside their own. They adopt what they view as the most exciting or fascinating parts of ancient Egyptian society and spirituality. Despite their considerable research, the children often regard ancient Egypt as almost almost fantastical and the existence of modern day Egyptians never seems to cross their minds. And they go on to talk about how the children like never address sort of like the reality of ancient Egypt or the reality of like modern day Egyptians. And so like their Egypt exists Mm -hmm. somewhere separate from both of those. So I thought that was like an interesting way to put it. And I'm not really sure where I come down on it. Like obviously this book was written in 1967 and we have to give it its credit for being a great book and a meaningful book to so many people. But I am always left wondering, like, how would an author have to handle this differently today? Yeah, it's a great question. And I feel like they get a little more of a pass because it was an ancient civilization Mm. and they weren't trying to do like modern day, you know, this is what it's like to be in X exotic land. Yeah. Which, by the way, I very much remember doing even in school in the 90s. There would be there was like a culture fair and we dressed up like one class dressed up as the Hungarians and one class like dressed up as, yeah, as different, you know, there was Australians, which at least they're white, but like we covered a lot of different, a lot of different countries. Um, and it was probably really problematic in retrospect, but that was like how we were learning about geography from our very sort of not not totally woke perspective. Right. Um, and so I think the fact that they were focusing on an ancient culture, which isn't that different from if they were doing ancient Rome or ancient Greece or something like that gives them a little bit of a pass. I agree. But it's, still 
you know, the way that you guys were learning about ancient Egypt leading up to Egypt Day and the way that, you know, we were studying it in school before gathering around the real mummy at the at the museum in Milwaukee. I think it makes sense that what our sort of instructors were focusing on were the most fantastical and sort of compelling and fascinating details and not the reality of, you know, most people were not wealthy and were not pharaohs and were not enjoying, you know, mm-hmm. we're not having anyone feed them grapes. I also think so, they get like a pass because they're kid. Like a lot of this is in the name right. of education. And I, I do think that there's like value for kids in learning through doing and like through experiencing and mm-hmm there are things that are like way too problematic to be done in schools now. You know, I, like I hope that some of those particularly problematic rituals and like traditions and units are phased out and like modes of learning mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But I, I do think that there like has to be some wiggle room in this conversation about like appropriation versus appreciation for kids to like celebrate different cultures. Um, and mm-hmm. I think if it's done right, it's okay. But I, I it is so hard sometimes doing this podcast because like I feel like I want to have like a take on so many things but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day like this is a children's story and these are kids experiencing a culture in a way that like they feel celebrates it you know they're not doing anything like deliberately offensive they love it like they want to be archaeologists when they grow up so I think there's a little bit of room there too and there's also right there's also the fact that like they they're aware that they're living in a fantasy world right Mm -hmm. so Um, an article that I saw when I was just Googling a bit about the book and I didn't go as in depth as you, but somebody mentioned how, um, the sort of setup and, and the way that, that these kids engaged with, uh, the Egypt game reminded them of Dungeons and Dragons, a sort of a precursor to, to Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. and the way that it's this sort of all consuming, uh, fantasy world and you, you live it and you're, you know, there's oracles and there's magic and you're making up different ways to play and, and rules and, and language and stuff like that. So to them, you know, there is the acknowledgement that they want to be archaeologists and that they're looking stuff up at the library and this was a real this was a real thing but it also importantly was a complete fantasy world for them and I think if they were talking about elves and and dwarves and taking more of like a fantasy approach um, obviously there wouldn't be the the fetishization concern so at the end of the day I think it just comes back to the fact that they're they're kids and they were engaging with it sort of with the the materials they had on hand which was a lot of imagination and then some fun things they found at the library they were so resourceful too which I think is a great value in this book you mentioned um briefly like their whole journey to get the colored pencils that they needed to design the hieroglyphics and like they had to wait until they could like scrape up the money to buy them or like they had to figure out how to get the things that they needed and you know mm-hmm. here's another soapbox like in a time when all of us adults included are like very used to immediate gratification and like getting what you want five hours later or Amazon delivering large packages to your house mm-hmm. in 24 hours like these are kids that had to be very resourceful and I thought that was really cool also yeah it does have a really distinct feel though especially for kids who haven't known the world before like Amazon and same day delivery and prime now and all that mm-hmm. uh, it was cool to see these kids uh, in a way that I remember remember doing as a little kid like okay we need to make a dollar ten how are we gonna do it and I remember walking around in the neighborhood trying to sell things and and taking steps like that and yeah it was just very common to have a goal and then not be able to fulfill it for even a few days as you got all the pieces in place but yeah I think that's the beauty too of this very long-term fantasy game that it wasn't just 
like, oh, we're going to play this for a little bit or do this game once and then move on to the next thing. It, it sort of, you know, was an exercise in patience in a lot of ways. Let's talk more about what happens when the boys get involved because this introduces like a whole new dynamic that I really liked and sort of like a push-pull with the girls and trying to figure out like if they were going to maybe give these boys the benefit of the doubt and trust them or if they were going to continue to like just hate them for being boys basically. The boys get involved because when April and Melanie and Marshall decide to sneak off from their trick-or-treating group on Halloween to like go check out the land of Egypt, which I don't even know if we've said, but the land of Egypt is the backyard of the A to Z shop that the professor runs because, you know, they stumbled back there. April realized that there was this bust of Nefertiti and they've created this whole game that's based in the backyard of the store. And they're not allowed to go there for a couple of weeks because there's the murder in the neighborhood. And so all the parents are making the kids stay home. But they designed this plan to sneak off from the group on trick-or-treat night and to go check on things in Egypt. And they successfully do that. But in the course of of that journey, these two boys, Ken and Toby, catch them. um, And they're like spying on them over the fence. And they basically say, well, they don't. But I guess Elizabeth says, Elizabeth has joined the group at this point. Elizabeth says to the boys, like, if you don't tell on us, we'll let you play. And Right, that was her idea, which I loved. She's so (laughs) smart and so cool. And I loved that, like, these boys, are still like we're meant to believe that they're so nasty and like so obnoxious but they're still young enough to like be bribed with an invitation to play like they just want to be mm-hmm. included they're not so cool that they can't be bought that way and I loved that sort of like nuance to their character yeah I loved that too and I was thinking about how sixth grade is really the cusp of like before you care too much about being cool before like coolness trumps all else mm-hmm. um, and you know you get into middle school and and that's sort of your, your guiding light for everything because then when you're 11 you're still a kid and you do still like really want in on these fun games even you know whether they're cool or not or whether they're with like the popular crowd or not and so I loved that yeah there was sort of this range of ages all playing together and the oldest ones were like kind of the oldest you can be when you're still like kid and not a tween and I remember too when the boys were introduced at some point I was like is somebody going to develop a crush Mm -hmm. like is are you know is liking each other gonna come into this and it never did they were just always friends playing this game together and I kind of love that yeah that was refreshing Mm -hmm. the only kind of like weird taste that we got and this is something again that I've noticed in books from like the 60s and 70s and, and kind of the 80s where like there's this trope in middle grade books of that time where it's like these quote unquote cool boys are known for just like teasing girls, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's sort of how they became popular. And I think that's something that's shifted to, again, like in this particular moment in history where I think there's a lot of conversation about how little boys are socialized to like Mm -hmm. be around girls. Like, I don't know that authors are necessarily going to be including that trope anymore going forward where like that's the way to get popular is to like tease girls and make fun of them. And, you know, that actually means you like them. Um, Right. That's definitely (laughs) kind of like Ken and Toby's approach a little bit but it never comes into play in the group with Melanie and April and Elizabeth specifically. Yeah, I appreciated that because yeah, I do think there's been a big cultural shift away from like bullying obviously and and I think girls are starting to get the message that like no, we shouldn't put up with, with boys being mean to us and that's not just like a normal everyday thing so hopefully writers are shifting away from that but but yeah because we're, we, we sort of are introduced to Ken and Toby as like these cool kids who are really funny by making fun of everyone and who give everyone a hard time. Yeah. And that used to be the thing. I think when you came home from school, especially as a little girl and you were like, mom, like these boys are being mean to me. They're making fun of me. And 
sort of like the party line for moms everywhere mm-hmm. was like, that means that they like you. <laughs> yeah, right. Which, what message does that, uh, does that instill in us for adulthood? <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad that's over. But so that's kind of how we meet Ken and Toby. But then like I kind of grew to like them a little bit more when we discovered that they could be convinced not to tattle about the girls using this backyard and like playing this game without adult supervision as long as they were invited to play. I thought that was really cool. But it was also funny how April and Melanie like really wrestled with whether or not they were ready to include more people. Like it was one thing to bring Elizabeth in. They honestly like brought Elizabeth in because they thought that she resembled an ancient Egyptian queen, mm-hmm. which again, like problematic, but a little problematic. A little problematic, <laughs> especially that we had to read in such great detail about it but like right they invited her everything ended up being just fine they were open to having her as part of the game but like bringing boys in other than marshall forget it like that's so stressful and they're panicking like they're like maybe we should just like abandon ship like maybe we should stop playing Mm -hmm. this game april says maybe they won't even come back at all maybe they were just curious and now that they know all about it they just might not bother to come back and i don't think they're going to think to the other kids either at least not as long as they don't get mad at us or something you know i wouldn't be surprised if they just don't show up tomorrow at all and i just love that it's like as a kid like that's your panic mode to just kind of like Mm -hmm. explain it away and be like it's it's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen it's gonna be fine Mm -hmm. and i totally remember i mean don't you remember having those sort of elaborate games that you would play with only one friend or that I would only play with my sister and it was like really anxiety provoking to try to bring someone else into it because it was like you get so impatient if they didn't get it or they didn't do it right and and you just are putting so much stock into this like game you've created or this like imaginary world that you step into uh, and so that part was really kind of sweet because I, I could remember feeling that way and, and feeling nervous about like are they going to get it can we play this game together yeah I think especially for kids like learning to share and take turns is so hard in any game game and so like it's one thing if you have to figure out how to share and take turns with your best friend or your two best friends or even Mm -hmm. your three best friends but like how are we going to share and take turns among a group of six people that is overwhelming and their game is so elaborate at this point like you kind of lose track of the details in the book although I think as a kid I was much more taken with like the specifics of what they were doing and all of these Mm -hmm. like ceremonies that they were putting together and all of the like decorations that they set up in their worlds of Egypt like that was much more what I focused on as a kid whereas an adult I I definitely was like more into the dynamics of the kids and like Mm -hmm. even what was going on with the parents but yeah like you can't even imagine with all of their complexities of this game like how are they possibly going to introduce other people to it without them messing it up right and then I loved I felt sort of this sense of, of joy and wonder along with them when the boys actually were able to contribute. Like they had been trying to decorate the altar of Set, who is the evil god, and they didn't really have anything for it. And so they were delighted when the boys showed up the next day, loaded up with, you know, plastic snakes and a stuffed owl and all this like creepy, a fake spider and all this creepy stuff that was like a perfect addition for, for decorating this altar that they'd been sort of putting off decorating. Um, and, it you know, you can just sort of feel with them how, how delighted they were that uh, these boys were able to bring something to the game that they hadn't even thought of yet. And then as especially Toby continues to sort of surprise them with his good ideas and his sort of willingness to play ball, they're so surprised and delighted and you sort of, yeah, remember that feeling of discovering new facets of people and, and you know, becoming friends with people in a, in a different way or seeing them in a new light. Yeah, I, I just love this concept of like everybody bringing something to the table. Like, because mm-hmm. I think that's something that 
sometimes even as adults we struggle with. Like it's hard to work on teams at work and even in your social life. Like it's hard to be part of bigger groups. And I think getting to the point where you appreciate that like everybody's going to show up with something, like whether it's a tangible Mm -hmm. thing or some sort of like story that they can tell or like a more intangible contribution to the dynamic. Like that's something that all of us as humans can benefit from. And so I liked that Melanie and April were getting this lesson. And like, if you give people a chance, they might surprise you mm-hmm. and they actually might bring more to the group than you have already. It's definitely a great reminder for, for adults as well. Yeah. But I also love that even through all of that, like there was this hilarious tension, like April does not want to cede control and she loves being the boss. <laughs> and I love that about her. And like Toby has all these good ideas. He's the one who really pushes them to work on the hieroglyphic alphabet. And Mm -hmm. April at first is like, why is that a priority? We're working on these other things right now. And he has this great argument where he was like, remember, if we have hieroglyphics, we can communicate secretly and nobody will know what our notes say. And at that point, she kind of has to admit that he's right. Um, But I just like loved the way she dealt with him. Like when he had ideas, she was like, oh, is that right? Is that what you've decided? Whose Egypt game do you think this is anyway? And you can just picture like an 11 year old saying that. And the fact that Mm -hmm. there's this weird boy girl dynamic, I think makes it even better. Yeah. What I love too, and I didn't really think about this while I was reading, but she definitely is our understanding of bossy, right? Like she's a bossy girl. And and now we know that bossy is a very sexist term and like, it's awesome she's a leader and she takes charge and she's comfortable, uh, you know, kind of leading, leading the charge. But what I love is that nobody at any point calls her bossy. Like it's clear from everything going on that she is the leader, but nobody really sees that as a downside or sort of like, you're a girl, like you should, you know, there's no element of that, which is pretty ahead of its time. Yeah. They kind of roll, they like roll their eyes at her, but nobody ever like actually calls her out or like tells her that she doesn't have like a spot at the table in the way that she wants to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's cool. You know, if if April is somewhere out there, like as an adult, she's doing something awesome right now. Oh, for sure. She's like, yeah, she's at least a millionaire. She's like doing great things. She's, yeah, she's doing just fine. (laughs) Something else sort of like big picture that I wanted to mention briefly before we start to wind down this conversation is um, the like pretty progressive and open conversations that they have about mental health in this book, which is something that I totally didn't pick up on as a kid and that we Mm -hmm. get in the discussions of the murderer. Um, There's this murder on the loose who's killed a bunch of kids in the neighborhood. And again, like the author doesn't get it perfect. You know, there's some wording Mm -hmm. issues. There's some like nuance to the statements that are made that I think aren't totally right um, or aren't totally like what we would want our kids to read in 2019. But I think that there's a lot in this book about mental health that like probably wasn't out there in 1967. So I'll Mm -hmm. I'll read what I found um, just because I think it's worth mentioning because even now there's so much chatter out there about like how we can introduce conversations about mental health to kids. Um, Mm -hmm. So Melanie is telling April about what her mom has said about whoever this killer is. She says, they do it because they're sick. That's what my mom says. It's a sickness of the mind. They can't help themselves. So there's no use hating them. Um, My mom says some people who are crazy are only crazy at times or in certain ways. Most of the time, they just seem like anybody. And again, I'm not condoning the use of the word crazy for the mentally ill. Mm -hmm. But I think the fact that like Melanie's mom is talking to her about these matters and telling her like not to hate people who are struggling in ways that like you can't see. I don't know that these are things that other authors were writing about for kids in 1967. Later on, when they have caught the killer who is a stock boy at the local toy store, 
the book reads, the redheaded man had admitted everything. There wasn't going to be a real trial because the man was very sick mentally and he was to be sent to a hospital. He was a relative of Mr. Schmidt and he had always had something wrong with his mind. He couldn't get a good job. And sometimes Mr. Schmidt let him work as a stock boy in his store. He'd work for a while and then he'd go away and do something else. But he always came back again. And since he was willing to work for very little money, Mr. Schmidt always hired him again. And I think this particular paragraph like points to the situation that so many people who struggle with mental illness find themselves in where like mm-hmm. it's hard for them to find a job and to be comfortable in a job and to land an employer that trusts them. And so you can get into these very dangerous cycles where you're not in a position to actually take care of your health. And you know, this doesn't put like quite that fine of a point on it, of course, but mm-hmm. I think like there's good stuff in there if it were worded perhaps a little bit differently, like we're moving in the right mm-hmm. direction. Yeah, it was really interesting because the murder subplot was was very much a subplot. And as an adult reading it, you're sort of like, oh, my God, like what's going on with the murderer? And even when like April essentially comes face to face with the murderer and is attacked, it still feels like a relatively minor plot point in a way. She sort of, you know, gets over it quickly. They discuss it pretty quickly. They sort of, you know, to them, the biggest thing going on is the Egypt game and not so much this, you know, potentially scary character in the neighborhood. And so it's it's a little jarring, actually, when you read about it as an adult and sort of the matter-of-fact discussion of it. Yeah. Um, but again, I was sort of like, I think this is reflective, really, of how kids work and sort of what looms large in their mind and what's confusing and what feels like part of the adult world and not their world and that kind of thing. And so I did admire, too, that, yeah, even though it was done in, in a way that was not totally 2019 approved, that there was this discussion. And it got me thinking about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, too. Mm-hmm. I recently watched that documentary. Documentary. And, you know, that was also, that actually debuted in 1968. So around the same time, mm-hmm. just after. And Fred Rogers was one of the first to like talk to kids and encourage parents to talk to their kids and kids to ask their parents about scary things. Mm-hmm. And certainly in the late 60s, like a lot of scary things were happening that um, I would imagine a lot of parents had sort of the attitude of like, we'll protect our kids from it. They don't need to know what's going on. And so I loved that this book was part of sort of that larger movement, which I would toss Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood into as well of um, let's let's talk about it. Let's understand it. And I, yeah, I thought it was handled relatively well uh, and in certain certainly the, the parlance of uh, 1967. But I thought it was really interesting that it was not just a boogeyman that they, you know, explain away or yeah. um, scary lurking, a scary lurking character with somebody that they, the author sort of humanized for the for the, the kids. Yeah, way to go, Zelfa Keatley Snyder. I, I think that yeah. was pretty cool of her. So normally um, at the end of every episode, I'll ask the guest if the experience of coming back to whatever book we've spoken about has made them love the book all the more or if it's ruined it for them. Um, but since you are coming to the book for the first time, I think I'll turn that question on myself and I'll answer it if it's okay with you. Yeah, um, I would say it didn't ruin the book for me. I think I can't say that it made me love it all the more because I think that so much of what I loved about the book when I was little was like the magic of the world. And growing up, I loved any book in which the kids like designed their own world and like had some agency mm-hmm. about things like this. And I love the concept of like setting up a space and building your own rules and like being among your own little society. And so that was really, I think, what I probably loved the most about it when I read it when I was younger. And I think, you know, just like a consequence of being older, I wasn't as engaged with those parts of this book. Mm -hmm. And so it came down to like these bigger picture issues and the relationships. And I enjoyed those, but I think to really enjoy this book, like you have to be in the details of like the magic of the Egypt game itself. And so 
I, I can say it made me love it all the more, although I do appreciate now like some of the bigger issues that Zilpha Keatley Snyder handled at this point in history. So I kind of come down somewhere in the middle. Like it's not ruined for me. I don't love it all the more. I'd say I appreciate different things about it than I did as a kid, which makes sense. Yeah, it sort of made me wistful for, I, I sort of wished that I that in reading it, I could slip back into that mindset and just be so enamored of and enchanted by uh, a make-believe world. And yeah, I, I sort of like wished that I could, wish that I could do that the way that I could as a kid. Yeah, I wish you'd read it as a kid. It's, it's an especially fun read when you're little. It's, yeah. um, it's a nice memory. It's a good reading memory for me, for sure. Yeah, I could see that. So outside of the Egypt game, is there anything that you have been reading and loving recently that you would want to recommend to our SSR listeners? Yeah, I have been reading um, books by fellow debut authors like crazy lately, and there's so many good ones that just came out or are coming out. As a thriller writer, some thrillers I would recommend include um, The Winter Sister by Megan Collins that came out in February. Miracle Creek by Angie Kim is one that is coming out um, in April. It's a really, really great courtroom thriller that's getting a lot of attention. Um, I just started The Affairs of the Falcons uh, by Melissa Rivero, and that's a really great sort of immigrant, well, it's part of sort of immigration literature about um, a family from Peru um, and really beautifully written. I could do this all day. I read The Age of Light by Whitney Scherer, and it's a sort of glamorous 1920s Paris uh, sort of fictionalized um, fictionalized biography of a very glamorous young model turned photographer. So there's tons and tons of great stuff out there, even this spring by other other debut authors and I highly recommend all of those. Thank you for all those recommendations. I'll include links to all of them in the show notes along with a link to purchase the Egypt game and of course a link to check out Andrea's debut The Lost Night which has also been getting a ton of great attention so congratulations to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Listeners definitely go check that out in the show notes and Andrea I'm so grateful. I'm sure you've been doing a ton of traveling and press for your book so thank you so much for taking the time to be part of SSR. It's been so fun talking with you. Yeah thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>